Equality 2,000 cans. This year we're going for over 2,200. So we hope you can support us. Information is in the worship guide about how you can either support financially or bring donated cans to support the Super Bowl of Hope. So those are some opportunities that we have, but uh, we invite you to check those out. But at this point, we're going to hear uh, from the word, the word of the Lord. The scriptures tell us that God's word is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the bone and marrow. At FCC, we believe that God actively speaks to us through the reading of his word. So with this in mind, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, verses 17, or you can follow along on the screens behind me. Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, And the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word that it cuts to our hearts and convicts us, but that you also give us grace and mercy and a path forward. I ask you just open our hearts and our minds to hear the word to you, the word from you to us through Pastor Doug. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Have you ever been given an impossible task? You know, I'm not talking about a, a, a stiff challenge that you're not sure you can do it, it's a little overwhelming, but you work really hard, you get the help of others, and with a little bit of luck, you get the job done. I'm talking about an impossible task, something you are not capable of at all. For example, say uh, your dad one day says, you know, if you want supper tonight, you've got to dunk that basketball on the 10-foot goal, and you, oh, by the way, you're four years old. That's an impossible, that's happened to me once. No, just not really. Or say uh, you walk into work and your boss says, um, if you want your paycheck, you've got to show me that you're fully invested. So you have to quote the employee handbook, all 10 pages up from memory, right on the spot without any, any, uh, any mistakes. Or you apply for membership in an exclusive club and you're told that the entry fee is, membership fee is $100 million and you, your net worth is 100 k we, we all like to be challenged, but when we're given an impossible task, when it seems like we're being set up to fail, well, that doesn't seem fair, because how can we be held responsible for something we're not capable of? How can we be expected to do something that, that's not within our capacity? Maybe you feel that way sometimes when you read some of the commands of the Bible. 
or maybe specifically you might feel that way when you read through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' longest recorded sermon in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. You read through it sometimes and you say, wow, that's really, really challenging stuff. That seems, that seems impossible. I mean, doesn't Jesus know we're frail, fallible human beings? What's he doing here? What's the point? What is he, what is he driving at? Is he setting up, us up to fail? Well, today we're continuing our sermon series from the Sermon on the Mount, which we're entitling The Way of Jesus. Uh, and we're looking at verses 17 through 32. Eric read verses 17 through 20 just a few months ago. We're going to work our way through different sections of this. And as we read through it, you're going to see that Jesus says some extremely difficult things for us to hear and lays out some really difficult things, seemingly impossible things for us to do or achieve. So let's take a look. We're going to begin with the passage that Eric just read, verse 17 and verse 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, Jesus here, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. The New Testament hasn't been put together yet, right? And when you read through Genesis all the way through Malachi, there's some really challenging stuff, a lot of really powerful, inspiring, helpful, or convicting stuff, but there's some really challenging stuff, some perplexing laws, some maybe troubling stories. And when we read through some of it, it's easier for us to kind of scratch our head and it's like, wow, I'm not sure how this fits or how this is applicable. Uh, I'm not sure what God was doing here, what's behind all this. And, and so he says, I'm, I'm going to focus on Jesus. I'm going to focus on the New Testament. Um, some people even say, well, God changed. The God of the Old Testament, the God of the New, they're different gods or they seem to be different gods. And is that what we should do? The answer, according to Jesus, is, is no, an emphatic no. According to Jesus, all of the Old Testament matters. He, he says not one iota or one dot will disappear until it's been accomplished. And, and, and the iota is the smallest letter in the Hebrew language, and the, and the dot is the smallest stroke that you put, over the, put on the iota. Jesus says the whole Scripture, the whole of this Scripture it matters. You, you can't just ignore it. You can't just toss it out. You can't say it's not relevant. Now, I'm not saying that we can just apply every part of the Hebrew law to today. We need to wrestle with it, right? We need to interpret it. We need to understand it. We do that together. We do that in light of the rest of the scriptures. We do that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Some of it applies very clearly today. The Ten Commandments, for instance. Some of it applies to life in that particular society. It would apply in different ways today, perhaps. Some of it, the sacrificial system, for instance, is fulfilled in Christ. We don't, we're not supposed to sacrifice anymore to appease God. Christ has done that for us. So we need to in, interpret the law, but we can't afford to chuck any of it out. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.9, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it Lawfully, So that, that seems to imply that we can use it unlawfully or in ways that aren't true to God's intent. The law, what it, does it do? It shows us a picture of who God is. It gives us a picture of his holy perfection. 
It shows us how far short we fall of his perfection. It, re- it restrains us from doing evil. It says, don't do this, avoid this. And it shows us how to live lives that are pleasing to God. Next, Jesus says this in verses 19 and 20. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. I want, to, I want you to think about that for a second. Let that, that, that the weight of that statement. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we are saved by grace through faith. That's clear. We're not saved by how well we obey. But make no mistake, each of us will give an account before God and will receive judgment based upon what we've done with our lives and how we followed Jesus. So Jesus warns us against so presuming on, on God's grace that we don't realize that obeying Him, it's a serious thing. We are to trust Him, as the old hymn says, but we are to obey Him. And then Jesus, He said that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. That's a little like saying you have to run faster than Usain Bolt. You know? Because in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes, they were, they were viewed as religious elite. They were far and away superior to anybody else when it came to, at least externally, trying to follow the laws and commands and prohibitions of, of the Scriptures. They, they made obedience the, the focal point, the master passion of their lives. They figured that the law contained 249 commandments and 365 prohibitions. They tried to keep them all. I mean, how can anybody do better than that? Jesus, the crowd must have thought, what? There's, that's not possible. It's just not possible for us to outdo them. And it was impossible. Unless we receive grace from above. Because left to ourselves, we will never be able to meet the entry standards of the kingdom of heaven. Just not possible. But when we trust the only person who ever did keep the law of God perfectly, Jesus, when we trust the one whose righteousness did exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus, when we trust in the one who fulfilled its demands by dying in our place, Jesus, we're saved. And Jesus changes us so that we can truly obey him, not just externally. I mean, the Pharisees and scribes, they were, they were, they were, they were experts they were outstanding at doing the external stuff as they interpreted, as they taught it. But Jesus is concerned about the internal, the motives, the condition of our hearts. Remember he said, the kingdom of God is within you. So it's not just about obeying the rules, the, the letter of the law, Jesus says. It's about joyfully submitting to them in every way out of love the spirit of the law. So then the question comes, and Jesus is obviously the most outstanding preacher ever. Then he shows us, what does real obedience look like? 
What does it look like to properly understand and teach and obey the commandments that God has given us in the Hebrew Scriptures? And so then Jesus lays out different, different areas, different object lessons of it. We're going to get to the first three this week. We'll get to the next three next week. And, and the three areas that he looks at is practical areas in our relationships, the ang- area of anger and strained relationships, the area of lust, and the, the area of divorce. Let's pick it up in verse 21, the first area, example one, the area of, of anger and relationships. You have heard it said that it was, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to the person, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So in these three examples, and the three examples next week, Jesus has a, has a kind of a three-part pattern. He repeats it over and over. First, he says, you have heard that it was said. In other words, he's saying, you have heard from the teachers of the law, you have heard it from the Pharisees. This is what this Hebrew scripture means. This is how you apply it. Some of the understandings were correct. Some of them weren't. Which underlines an important thing for us to remember is that when we look to Scripture, when we come to Scripture, we must make sure that we understand clearly what it's saying. If we don't understand the Scriptures properly, well, we're done before we even start. The second thing Jesus does in this three-part pattern, is then he will say, you've heard it said this, but he says, but I say to you. In other words, Jesus says, I say to you, this is the true intent of the law. You know, if we're not, not careful we'll think that Jesus is contradicting what the Hebrew Scriptures say. He isn't doing that. He's unpacking the idea that he gave us back in verses 17 through 20. He's not abolishing. He's not changing even the slightest detail of the law. He's fulfilling it. When he says, but I say to you, it means he's interpreting the law. He's claiming authority to properly interpret what the law actually means. He gives the true intent. Not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And then finally, the third part of what he does in these three examples, then he gives a practical example. Next steps of what it looks like when you live this out. Sort of where the rubber hits the road. In the case of anger, this is what it looks like. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. Well, that's pretty good, right? I mean, that's, that seems accurate. Jesus says, but I say to you, and what he's doing here is saying, we shouldn't murder, yes, but he goes deeper. He says the real issue with murder is that the act of murder comes from a homicidal heart. Being angry and insulting somebody reveals we have the same problem in our hearts that a murderer does. We just haven't acted on it externally. And then what it looks like in real life, Jesus gives three examples. When you're angry with somebody else, you're liable to judgment. 
When you call somebody else a moron or, use, or insult them with contempt, we find ourselves maybe in court. And when we call someone a fool, we're in danger of hell. So in short, God cares about more than the physical act of murder. It's not just enough not to murder somebody. God cares about our, our hearts, about our motives, about the condition of our hearts in regard to other people. Basically, if you're holding on to resentment and anger and contempt, you've planted the seed of murder in your heart. What's Jesus doing here? Elsewhere, later on in Matthew, Jesus explains that the law is summarized in two commands. Remember what they are? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, this is why the law exists. All of it is encompassed in this. It's a field manual on how to do this. That's what the law exists. It shows us how to do this. I mean, you look through the Old Testament and the prophets were continually calling for Israel to follow God, not just externally, but internally from the heart. God doesn't want us to just, just to refrain from killing people while wishing they were dead in our hearts. He wants our inside and our outside to match. He requires more than our, our external obedience. He wants us to love him and others from the heart. And this is a tough one because we all sometimes struggle with conflict and resentments and, 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 and frustration and resentment because of hurts, pains, traumas. And conflict leads to the destruction of relationships and families. And Jesus talks about this quite a bit in the Gospels. And I've seen why, because as a pastor, I've seen countless people uh, who have struggled with, with issues like this. And, and they resented and nursed anger, and, and eventually it, it leads to a, a marriage that's struggling, or children who are hurt by it. And people who have nothing to do with the situation, they get the shrapnel that flies out when a marriage explodes, or when a relationship explodes. That's why Jesus urges Reconciliation. Jesus says, if you have an unreconciled relationship, do everything in your power to, to make that right. Now, of course, it takes two people. And the other person may not be willing to reconcile, but you do everything you can. Treat it as a matter of extreme urgency. So let's get practical. Are you nursing a grudge against somebody? Forgiveness is hard work. But Jesus says we must. We must do the hard work of releasing resentment and pursuing reconciliation. Condition of our hearts is at stake. Example 2. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than with your whole body to go into hell. So here we see the three-part pattern again. Jesus says, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. Again, that's pretty good. They've got an accurate understanding of the law. Then Jesus says, 
But I say the true intent isn't just not to commit adultery. It goes deeper, he says. The true intent, the real issue, is that the act of adultery comes from an adulterous heart. In other words, looking at somebody lustfully puts us on a path to adultery. And he gives us an example about a man and a woman, but it applies both ways, both genders. And then Jesus says, gives us, tells us what it looks like in real life, how to respond to this in action step. He says to take radical action. Eliminate whatever tempts you to gaze inappropriately. Deal with this sin forcibly. So Jesus doesn't only desire sexual purity in our actions. Don't commit adultery. He desires sexual purity in our hearts and minds as well. That's simple to say, but it can take courage and willpower to obey. So take radical action in what you watch, what you imagine. Don't watch explicit movies or consume explicit social media or TV shows or read steamy novels and wonder why you're struggling with sexual temptation. Take radical action. Eliminate it. Take radical action in your relationships. As you date, you're entering a world in which Jesus' worlds make no sense to almost everybody. Commit to finding somebody who, who not only loves these words of Jesus, but loves Jesus. Take radical action in your dating relationships to not cross the lines that Jesus says not to cross. You'll be going against whatever, uh, almost everything that culture tells you, but it's worth it. Take radical action in how you look at other people. Commit to honoring others in the way that you, you look at them. 1 Timothy 5.2 says to see younger women as sisters in all purity. God requires more than our obedience. God wants us to love him and others from the heart. Not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Example number three. Verse 31. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 2, the Old Testament law here. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now this, is, I realize, is a, is, a, is a sensitive and painful subject for a lot of people. Uh, it, it, it can be complicated and there's different situations and scenarios, but, but let's get to the heart of what Jesus is saying here. He says, You have heard it said, if you divorce, give your wife a certificate of divorce. This one's pretty bad. They're missing the point totally here. Uh, they're, they're using the scriptural teaching on divorce in Deuteronomy 24. They're focused on the loopholes. And so what was happening, they were divorcing their wives not for infidelity, but for you burnt supper. You put on weight. We don't get along. We've grown apart. All sorts of circumstances that, don't, that aren't allowed in, in Scripture. They're twisting Scripture to be as permissive as they want it to be. Jesus says, but I say that God has designed marriage to be a lifelong commitment. That Jesus emphasizes that marriage is a lifelong union and must not be broken except in rare, extenuating circumstances. Jesus gives us one here, infidelity. Paul gives us another one in 1 Corinthians 7, abandonment. What does it look like in real life? Don't divorce except for when it's biblically allowed. 
And if you do divorce for an unbiblical reason, we're not to remarry. Now, this one raises all kinds of questions and requires care in how we apply it. If you've been divorced and you're struggling with hearing this, please understand that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. And that we have to talk about your, your situation, what this means for you. If, if, you're in a, if you're in a struggling marriage, I want to encourage you. I've seen couples work through all sorts of issues and deals in their lives through the grace of God. But without getting into individual situations, what Jesus is saying is this. Take marriage seriously. Marriage is sacred. There are a number of implications. I want to tease from this passage in the future, but Jesus' point is clear. Take it seriously. Don't buy into the world's view of disposable relationships. So when it comes down to all three cases is this. God requires more than our obedience. God wants us to love him and others from the heart. And it gets very practical. How do we obey God in our, obey God in our relationships? Not just by doing the right things, but by obeying and loving from the heart. Now, at the end of a sermon like this, I realize how far I fall short of what Jesus has said. I don't know about you, but I have not always done a good job of keeping Jesus' commands. And my relationships have not always been characterized by what Jesus describes. So I think we should do two things. Uh, confess sin and where you've fallen short. Ask for God's grace. And then ask God to help you grow, not on your own power, but with the help of the Holy Spirit. Because we can change. It's, it's not impossible. It's hard. We will not be perfect in obeying, but it's not impossible. God can and God will transform us from the inside out because our hope is a Savior who gave his life for us to make us new people so that we could not be just only forgiven, but transformed. So come to that Savior today and ask for the Holy, to, Holy Spirit to, to change you, that you're not just obeying externally, but that you, your heart is soft and tender and, and loves God and loves others. This true spirit of the law. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. We confess to you that we have fallen short uh, in so many ways. And Lord, we um, are in no position to cast stones. So Lord, we ask for your, your help uh, that we would be people who aren't just focused on the externals, the people whose hearts are soft and tender, hearts who love you and serve you, hearts who love others, that we would be truly obeying you in the spirit of the law. We ask this through Jesus' name. Amen. Well, near the end of the service today, we have a really special part uh, this morning. I'm going to invite Deb Clutt.
I see the answer written in your eyes. 